Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. He had a reputation and now we use the word reputation. They didn't use the word reputation. They used the word name. Proverbs 22 verse 1, a good name is to be chosen above riches. So honour was more important than well. When we read a book written in another time and place in history, it's reasonable to read it in the context in which it was written. When the Bible was written, the Greco-Roman household was the basic unit of Roman society, from which wealth was distributed and assistance was given to those in need. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for the second in the series on the household of God as we look further at the Greco-Roman household and see how it speaks to our own relationship with God. So Father, I pray that as we look at your word, that God today, people would hear not just, not just your word, but Father, your words. That God, the Holy Spirit would speak into people's lives. The Holy Spirit would speak into people's hearts. The God... Your word says in 1 Corinthians 14 that when the Spirit of God speaks, he reveals the secrets of hearts to the only one who knows that secret apart from God himself. And so I pray today that people would hear your words and that Father, you'd help me to hide behind your word and that God, your word would set people free. Your word would bring people into freedom. Your word would heal. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the household of God. This is a series that we're doing over the next few weeks. I want you to appreciate that the, the term household in, in our language just simply means the people who live in a house. It simply means the family of people. But in the biblical sense, in the, you'll see the words there, the Greco-Roman sense. That is the world of the Mediterranean, around the Mediterranean Sea which included modern countries today of uh, Egypt and Libya and, of course, the Middle East, um, as far as the, the, the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean, which would be Jordan and Sidon and, and Israel, of course, and then around Turkey and then over into Greece. Those countries, they, they in, in that time, in the first century, used the word household in a different way than the Australian Bureau of, of Statistics uses the word household. We might think of a household as just whoever's under your roof at night. And if you're a parent of uh, older teenagers or people in the early 20s, not even necessarily at night. Uh, they come in at all. Anyway, so the, the term I, I, I want to show you is used in the Bible. And I want you to hear what the writers meant by it. There were, there were ancient writers who described the household as a kind of microcosm of the state, that is the Roman Empire itself. In fact, uh, two ancient writers, Aristotle and uh, Philo, both described what happens in a household as an indicator of the health of the entire empire. Uh, Plutarch, in his book, which I'm sure some of you have never read, Advice on Marriage, because it was written, you know, like 300 BC, uh, he wrote that only men who could exercise proper oversight in their own households were seen to be fit 
to exercise any authority in the state, that is, to become perhaps a senator or uh, someone who had a position as it may be within the, the empire. When I asked last week what you thought of when you thought of a house church, some of you said, you know, well, many of the people of the day would have been poor. And that's true, they would have been poor and their houses would have been not necessarily houses with rooms. It probably were often one room where everybody lived and did eight and so on in one room. That, that's true, that, that, that is probably the majority of the houses. But the types of houses that were used for house churches in the first century, and I think this is important because I hear some people, I think naively today, say that the kind of church that, that God has ordained is only the house church. And when you, when you understand what we're talking about when we talk about a church that met in people's house, you, you begin to realise that those houses were the houses of householders. And a householder is a title. And it meant someone who had a house large enough with a courtyard, usually a courtyard. And that house would have had two rooms, at, usually, that faced the street. They would have had shutters or some kind of uh, window closing mechanism that they could open up. And from those, it was a shop. They could sell their wares or whatever. And you will see in a, in a couple of weeks why that's significant for the church, why that's important for the church. These, the, the particularly wealthy householders would have also had a country estate. When we came to Tasmania in the mid-1990s, people in Tasmania would talk about their shacks. And I'm thinking, someone coming from the mainland, a, a house, you know, uh, a shack. Okay, well, if that's a house, a shack's got to be, you know, three pieces of corrugated iron leaning up against a couple of gum trees or something. And then I saw some of your shacks. Not, not that I'm envious. No, it's obvious, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and they're like, sometimes they're two-story places on a beachfront somewhere that's double-story brick and it's better than the house you live in through the week. Not that I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But when we talk about these really wealthy householders, they would have had a, a country estate. And that country estate would have had some kind of rural business associated with it, whether they were pasturing sheep and cattle or whether they grew crops or probably uh, olives, they would have had olive groves, they would have had possibly a vineyard associated with it. And we know this because many of the, the, the men who became emperors, and I'm thinking particularly of Vespasian who was known as the donkey farmer, he, had, he farmed donkeys and he, had, uh, he, he also had, I believe, olive groves. And he became emperor. So he was a householder who took up a position in the military who later became the emperor, after, uh, basically after Caesar Nero. So these, so these householders were people of incredible influence. They would have had uh, servants and, and others. Um, 
these, these wealthy households, you've you got to think in terms of the Greco-Roman world did not have social welfare. There was no unemployment benefits. There was no Medicare. There was nothing like that. In fact, the taxation that happened went to Rome. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot spent locally. So how did local communities afford to to do public works. Well, often what they would do is they would appeal to one of these very wealthy householders. Uh, they would be called upon to meet a need. It could have been that there were, there were people who would just individually petition, or it could have been a town. Um, in, in the city of Rome, there's a number of buildings, amazingly, still standing that have been there for over two thousand years and you can go to some of these buildings and you'll see some of them are named after the benefactors or the health the wealthy householders who funded them so you'll see um, Cicero's building you'll see uh, other very wealthy prominent people that went down in in history uh, Crassus um, uh, and and some of these, these people, so the town would then name the building after the person who donated the money, and, and the, there was a reason for that. When this happened, when, when a wealthy householder agreed to help someone or a community in need, they were referred to, the Latin word is patron. We use the term today, patron of the arts. We, we use that term. It's the, the Latin term, essentially meaning another Latin word, benefactor. Someone who helped. Now, you'll, you'll see why this is important to, when you come to the New Testament. These patrons received something for their generosity. Now, the game was played like this. The patron would do something for a person, a family, a community, and they would expect something in return. And what they would expect in return was this thing that for most of us, we're going to go, you're joking, is that all? But this is what they would expect in return. Honour. Honour. When I prepare a, a couple for marriage, and it, there are many couples here who I did prepare for marriage, you know that we come to that part in the vows, just you know, a few weeks out from when you get married, where we deal with the vows. And, and one of the things that we look at is the vow that you make to each other, which includes to honour. And I, I make the point that whenever I've asked, are you prepared to vow that? Yes, I am. Do you know what it means? No, I don't. Which is why we do marriage prep. So that when a couple approaches their wedding day, and I'm doing a wedding in a, in a few weeks, and we're going through this right now this, at this time, that they understand when you vow to the other person that I will love, cherish and honour you, you know exactly what you mean. So hopefully today you'll have a greater appreciation of what it means to honour. Okay, so patrons were honoured for their generosity. In the Greco-Roman world, honour, which is your reputation, it's what others say of you, it's when others think highly of you in a marriage. It's when you treat the other person as incredibly important. You show them respect. If the Prime Minister or the Queen of England walked in now, 
I expect that we would stand as a, a mark of honour if the governor, uh, Kate Warner, walked in, Professor Kate Warner, we would, we would stand. In fact, I was at a ceremony where indeed that is exactly what we had to do. Uh, in fact, we, I was a part of the, the procession and, and I had to wait for the governor to enter before I could enter. After, uh, was, no one was allowed to enter before her. This is a mark of honour. And so if you go to the Greco-Roman world, we see that this, it's called the honour culture. Honour culture, the honour-shame culture, honour. And, and in Australia, we kind of don't do that very well. So I thought, until I realised uh, on January 26, when the Australia Day honours list was given out, there were people who were wondering whether their name was on it. And I figured, oh, okay, we, we don't care unless we actually get an honour. And then when Margaret Court, the greatest female tennis player of all time, was to be honoured, there were people who said she shouldn't be honoured. And I thought, oh, we do care. We do care. And then the other, the other side of honour, in fact, the opposite of honour, is disgrace and it's called shame. And I'll be talking about that in this series so that you understand the connection to the household so that you get it. And when our Australian SAS soldiers committed war crimes in Afghanistan, it brought shame to Australia. It brought shame to us. So we, we do have a little bit of this still floating around. Not as much as Asian or Oriental countries where it's huge, hugely important. But here's what we need to understand. By the time of the New Testament, the Greco-Roman world, honour was the most important thing you could have as a person. It was more important to you than money, possessions, servants or any accolade. Honour was the thing to be prized. So we read in Psalm 112 verse 9, which is a, a psalm that talks about the blessing of the man who lives right before God. And as Stephen said, it's not that we, we serve God to be blessed, but in this psalm it says, God will bless those who are faithful to him. And it describes that person, it says this, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, his horn or his strength, which is a, the way that, that term the horn, his horn means, is exalted in Honour, forgive the American spelling, it's an American translation Bible. In honour, it's a, it's a big deal to receive honour. We see in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 verse 5, referring to one of the, the good kings, King Jehoshaphat, therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. So this is the blessing of God. And all Judah brought tribute, that is money, to Jehoshaphat. And he had great riches... But most importantly, honour. The people thought highly of him. The people thought well of him. He had a reputation. And now we use the word reputation. They didn't use the word reputation. They used the word name. Proverbs 22 verse 1, A good name is to be chosen above riches. So honour was more important than wealth. When the Bible speaks of living a wise life, it, 
its appeal to the Greco-Roman audience, in this case, the Jews, is if you will embrace wisdom, this is what will happen. You will discover that long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honour. So honour was a big deal, a really big deal. Honour was prized more highly than wealth in the Greco-Roman world. More highly than wealth. And those who benefited from the generosity of a patron, a benefactor, honoured them by doing one thing, and it was the one thing they were expected to do, but the way the game was played was the patron never told them, this is what I expect in return. Everyone just knew it. So the game was played that if Tony was my benefactor and he gave me something that I needed or petitioned him for, he would never say, now you owe me. He would never say that because he wouldn't have to. And knowing Tony, he would never let it go. I just, I just, yeah, just about so much. But the way it would work was Tony would then look to see if I was giving the correct response to his benefaction, his generosity, his kindness to me. And the way it would work would be this. I would go up to someone like this. Just follow me now, uh, sorry. Making you do some work on the camera there, sorry. Say, Heidi, have I ever told you what, what Tony's done? Yeah, you know those. Um, you know how I wore my shoes out because you're in the shoe business. Yeah, um, he he had an old pair of smelly shoes and he, he gave them to me. He's an awesome guy, awesome guy, awesome guy. No, 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 no. I, I I I I couldn't help but a little be a little bit humorous. He might have bought me a new pair of shoes from Heidi Shop, which I didn't even know you sold men's shoes. You do. I found that out when we got Ruby's Doc Martens. I I thought it was a girly shop where you work. Apparently so, Heidi. Apparently so. I was stunned to see that there was three pairs of men's shoes in your store. I, I, it's a good range. Now, if Heidi had been my patron and benefactor, I wouldn't have just done that to illustrate this. I would speak highly of Tony. I would tell people, this is what Tony's done. You, you know, Tony is the most generous man I know. Tony is a kind man. He did this for me and he is a great man. And if you, and if you ever have anyone tell you otherwise, correct them because this is what he's done for me. So this is what is called showing gratitude. Because, get this, the Greek word in the Greco Greco-Roman world for what a patron did when they did an act of generosity and kindness the Greek word was charis now for those who know Greek you'll know that that is the English translated word grace he would give me a grace in other words I had a need I asked him to meet the need he didn't have to meet the need he's a patron who could meet my need he meets my need. That act of meeting my need is called, was called in the Greco-Roman world, charis, grace. He's given me something I don't deserve. Now, what does he expect in return? Gratitude. How do I show the gratitude? Not by saying, oh, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. He couldn't care less about that. He wanted me to go and tell everybody in sundry what a great guy was. That was showing gratitude in the Greco-Roman world. So gratitude was shown to a patron by telling others about his kindness. Now when you understand this, 
we've, we come to the psalmists and we read in Psalm 22, verse 22, statements like this. And you'll see this all through the Psalms. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You see how the psalmist is treating God as the ultimate patron, as the ultimate benefactor, the one who is generous, the one who is gracious. And so we see this in the Psalms. We, we see in Psalm 66, verse 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. See what's happening? He's done something for my soul. I'm going to tell others. See in that Psalm 22, verse 22, verse of Psalms, that the, the recipient comes into, we'll say, church and sings aloud what God has done. Not just so God hears it, but so that you hear it. That's why it says in the epistles, in Colossians chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 4, sing spiritual songs and hymns to one another. You think, no, my worship goes to God alone. Then, then I want to stretch your understanding of what it means to give gratitude and show gratitude to God. When you get the Greco-Roman world, the way they thought, the way they wrote these things down, we can read that and go, huh, oh yeah, whatever. But now let's begin to understand what's happening here. So gratitude was shown to the patron by speaking on his behalf to other patrons. So for example, uh, Zoe has a patron. It's called Daddy. And she also has other patrons because she was working as a, a nanny in Melbourne for uh, some, some people who were very well connected. I think that's fair to say. And they were very, very kind to her. Now, what if I needed to leverage that connection? I haven't met them. She might put in a good word for me, which she won't. I know that. She won't. She'd be embarrassed. Oh, no, Dad, what do you do? Don't, don't. Anyway. But she might put in a good word for me. So she, as a, someone who has benefited from a patron, might, I might say, oh, you know... Someone or other, I'd like to meet them. She might, she might connect us. So, someone who gratitude was shown in that instance then by maybe an introduction, a patron to a patron. So when you get that, I want you to see this passage now in Luke chapter 7, one of the most pivotal chapters in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 7 verse 2 says this. Follow this story. See what's happening here. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. That tells us two things straight away. Number one, this centurion was a householder. He had a servant. The servant's got to sleep somewhere. This centurion was probably a wealthy centurion, as will be pointed out in a moment. And, it also, and this is the thing that, that most householders we might have this impression that they were nasty and mean to their servants, but the historical records show that was not in their interest. It was in their interest to be kind and generous to their servants. So, this servant, it says, was highly valued by the centurion. 
That's a typical thing for a householder to feel about their staff. Luke 7 verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, what did he hear about Jesus? That Jesus could heal the sick. So it sounds like this servant is at the point of death. But when he heard about Jesus, he sent to him, what's the next line going to say? I'm thinking it's going to say four soldiers. Oh, well, he's a centurion, which means he commands a hundred soldiers. But that's not what it says. He sent to him elders of the, elders of the Jews, and they said, be gone with you, Roman filth. We're not, no, they didn't say that. What is going on here? He sent him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. This is fascinating. Watch this. Verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, who? The elders of the Jews of Capernaum. This is verse 1 tells us Jesus returned to Capernaum. They pleaded with him, with Jesus, earnestly saying, He... The centurion, see what's going on here? He is worthy to have you do this for him. Huh. You see, the elders of the Jews could come to Jesus and Jesus would give them his attention. Why? Because they're both Jews. They're all Jews. I'm going to make this point in the next installment of this series. It's the word kin. You look after your kin Kin is not just your mother, father, brother, sister, son or daughter. Kin is your uncle, your cousin, your second cousin, your third cousin, your fourth cousin. Aunt, uncle. Maybe some of you grew up with good friend of the family and you were told as a young person, call them uncle da-da-da or auntie da-da-da. I did. That's kinship. Kin means it's short for kind, of the same kind. So it's like, I'll be using the term fictive family. You treat one another as family. And Jesus had an obligation to listen to the request by these Jewish elders because they were family, not by blood, but by nationality. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Note what comes next, verse 5. And remember what I told you about gratitude toward a patron because it says this, For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. See what they've just done? They've just shown gratitude to their patron. They've just bragged on their patron. And Jesus went with them, it says, verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent. And I want you to see this word. Because we read this word and we think it means mates and it doesn't and I'm going to I'm going to point this word out in a moment because this word has been obliterated by such things as Facebook but here it is he sent friends that's the word I want to highlight to you saying to him saying to Jesus so Jesus never actually got to meet the centurion that we know not in this story but the centurion sent friends there is something going on here what the householder, what the centurion householder is doing now is saying something that everybody in that culture would have gone, oh, I see what's going on. They would have got it. And it's this. If you were a householder and you had, you know, a million dollars, you're at this level, and you wanted to get in cahoots with a hundred millionaire who had this much, you didn't ask him to come to your place. The idea was that 
He had to invite you to his place because you're lesser than him. That's how it works. So see what's going on here now. Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. See what's just happened? See what this centurion's just done? He's a a wealthy householder. He funded an entire public building called a synagogue. He says, I'm not worthy for you. He's just told the crowd, because the friends have declared this, that, he's, that, that he is nothing compared to Jesus. Therefore, verse 7, I did not presume to come to you, because this is how it worked in the Greco-Roman world. But say the word and let my servant be healed. Now think about this. Who in the empire could say the word and with absolute surety and guarantee it would be done? Caesar. You know, um, the prophet Isaiah said, every valley shall be filled, every hill shall be brought low at the coming of the Lord. You know, just before John the Baptist, Caesar visited, Augustus visited the land of Israel. They literally filled in valleys and literally brought down hills to make the road as smooth as possible. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please visit our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Household of God, Part 2, from our online store. As we've heard tonight, all members of the Greco-Roman household enjoyed the protection and provision of the householder. It's that same relationship language that God uses with us and reveals our place in the household of God. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues with the Household of God series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.